Good morning, saints. The book of God begins with the glory of God. It ends with the glory of God. His praise is enduring forever and ever throughout all eternity. The redeemed from every tongue, nation, and tribe gathered to worship Him. The theme of the glory of God runs from the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation. It is not a sporadic topic. It permeates virtually every page of your Bible. It undergirds every truth that we know about God. It is the very foundation of theology. Every corner of theology, the study of God, properly understood. It is the loftiest pursuit of man. It is the purest science to engage Indeed, Charles Spurgeon said that theology is the queen of all sciences. The glory of God is your strongest comfort in life's trials. It is the anchor for your mind and your soul when the storms of life rage around you. It is your highest aspiration in life. It is the most beautiful of all pursuits. It will humble you to the dust when you perceive but a fraction of its full brilliance. It will uphold and strengthen you in your weakest moments. It will bring crisp clarity to your times of confusion. It precedes And will outlast any and everything in the world around you. It is the Christian's great interest. It is our privilege and our honor to plumb its depth without fear and without terror. Now we speak to the glory of God in our everyday speech. But I wonder if we truly appreciate the significance of this overwhelming topic. The New Testament echoes what the Old Testament captured so well regarding the glory of God at the giving of the Ten Commandments. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, says this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Enough! For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, Moses said, I tremble with fear. As the glory of God, the excellence of his character was revealed there, there were physical manifestations that instilled fear and dread in the hearts of everyone present 
including Moses. Even the animals were not to come to the foot of that mountain. The people begged for there to be no more. Can we be done with this? The revelation of the glory of God rightly instilled a sense of awe and wonder and even terror. The glory of God is not something to be taken lightly or to trifle with. Moses felt the weight of leading the people of God against so many obstacles and trials. And so he requested of God, he begged God, show me your glory. Show me your glory so I can deal with these people. God's response was this in Exodus chapter 33. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see man shall not see me and live to tell the story. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you will stand on the rock While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. God's response to to Moses was telling He related to Moses in a way that we can all understand. Does God have physical hands or a face or a back? Of course he doesn't. But here's what he was telling him. I'll take you to a safe place. There's some rocks. There's a safe place where a cleft will give you a limited view of what I reveal to you. I cannot show you all of my glory. If I did, you would die. But behind the cleft of a rock, I will show you, I will reveal to you just a small portion of my glory. I will let you see a small portion, if I can put it that way, of my essence. I will give you just enough to sustain and to help you and to give you perspective. It was a very gracious but a measured revelation. It was all Moses or any one of us could ever handle indeed. The New Testament echoes this statement when speaking about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, in unapproachable light. 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Notice his intrinsic glory in that verse and also that which is ascribed or given to him. More on that distinction a little later. But what actually is the glory of God? What is a clear understanding of the essence of God's glory? And furthermore, what is the rightful impact that the glory of God should have upon our thinking, our disposition, our fervency in serving him, and our general outlook? These are the two primary questions that we'll seek to answer today and drill down on in the weeks to come. What exactly is the glory of God? The statement is found so often in Scripture. I wonder if we sometimes don't give it the proper thought that it deserves. We use the word, the concept, a lot. And maybe there's a vague understanding of it, which is good. But what is God's glory? What is this great theme that is in the beginning and in the middle and in the end and all throughout God's word? The Hebrew word for glory, you might know, is actually weight. That is very instructive. That's W-E-I-G-H-T. We could say that the glory of God is the weight or it is the beauty and the brilliance of his essence. The excellence of the sum of all of his attributes. The glory of God is the weight or the beauty and brilliance of his essence. The excellence of all of his attributes. All that he is. God alone is eternal. God alone is almighty. He is the first cause. He is holy. He is mercy. Just to name a few. All of these things, all of these descriptions, all of these attributes comprise the glory of God. The glory of God is His glory and His alone. It is not shared with anyone else, nor could it be. There is no one like Him. There is no rival. His glory is eternal because he is the eternal one. This morning we strike a tone of awe and wonder. That is where we must begin when talking of the glory of God. 
But keep in mind, through the revelation of Jesus Christ, God is approachable. That is both the wonder and the mystery of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That reality, that truth, that is the power of the blood. It is the beauty of the old rugged cross. It is the joy of the advent of the Christ, that little babe born thousands of years ago in Bethlehem. When we see him, we see the Father. This morning is an introduction and an overview of this great topic. We will investigate and plumb some of the depths of God's glory in the weeks to come. My hope is that this is both humbling and also uplifting. That it is both sobering and deeply refreshing. That it is corrective where needed and also freeing. And that most of all, we begin to see the glory of God as the great fount of unquenchable joy in our lives. This is precisely what Peter speaks to in the midst of our trials. We haven't seen him with our eyes, but we know him. We have not seen the Lord Jesus, but we believe in him. And we are filled, as the King James says, with unspeakable joy. Now last week I briefly flashed up this brother right here. He worships in Alexander's church in Kazakhstan. He is a new believer and he was baptized just a few months ago. He will tell you that he was far from the Lord before he was saved. He was full of anger and hatred. Can you imagine facing him on a bad day? It's where you just walk far to the other side. He was a special ops soldier. Quite frankly, in my opinion, falls under the category of one who probably does not need much weaponry to help him. But oh, this brother. He cannot stop talking about all that God has done for him. How God has changed him completely. He is passionate about knowing more about God. He comes early to the worship service and he stays literally for hours afterwards talking about God. In fact, it's hard if, because I didn't know him. I just met him this summer. I didn't know him before. It's hard to believe. Well, I mean, I can believe, but it's hard to believe his before story because all I see now is this gracious, gentle giant. I know he's a new believer. 
But have we lost our intrigue to know him better? Scripture speaks about losing our first love. Oh, you can have your doctrine down to a T. You can believe all the right things, but do not lose your first love. Do we pursue lesser pursuits with greater vigor? Our brother is still wonderstruck by it all. And it was such a blessing for like a week to be around him. This summer I was so encouraged by testimonies and people like him. In Brazil and Kazakhstan. And in all the churches that we visited this summer. God is at work all around us. Be a part of that. It's beautiful. I mean, everywhere, the DMV, around the world, people are being changed by God. They are determined to worship Him and Him alone. And the beauty of God just flows right through them. So let's begin by picking up on a concept that I referenced earlier. This will help us understand the glory of God in a better way. And you probably have noticed this yourself. Let's look at a well-known passage in the book of Romans. Paul has just revealed in an extraordinary way the story of redemption, the power of the blood, and the simplicity of the gospel. It is here that we find so clearly enunciated that salvation is by faith and it is not by your works. If you entertain the notion that you will enter heaven by your good works, you have not studied nor do you know the glory of God. The glory of God is revealed in the gospel. He is so clearly and faithfully put forth. When he comes to the end, Paul, when Paul comes to the end of expounding such sublime truths, what is Paul's response? This is Romans chapter 11, verse 33 is where we'll begin. What is Paul's response after this lengthy dialogue on the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel, the power of the blood? Fellow saints, he cannot contain himself. This Pharisee who sought to kill other Christians and stamp out this new, this new thing, the followers of the way. His heart explodes with these beloved and striking words, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth of the riches and the wisdom of and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? 
or who has been God's counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, that God would ever be indebted to anyone? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. How many times do we see that last phrase all throughout the New Testament? We could, of course, do an entire sermon on these words alone. But I would like at the moment to direct your attention to a great dividing that we see, a dividing line between the truths in the passage that we just read. There's a line that goes right through it. The apostle here extols the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He confesses that God's judgment and his ways are unsearchable. He asserts that there is none like him. He stands alone. There is no mortal man that could ever compare to the Almighty. But notice what he does in verse 36. You will find this all throughout the New Testament and, of course, the Word of God as well. The very last verse. For from him, through him, to him are all things... That, my friends, is the glory that is intrinsically of God. All things, all glory is from him and through him. We do not add to his intrinsic glory. Pardon as I say this, but we do not make him better. We do not make him more glorious. He does not lean on anyone for that. God's glory is God's glory and his alone. All of the moral excellence, the power, the attributes, they are all his. When we say that there, is in, that there is glory that is intrinsically his, this is what we are referring to. But notice what he says next. What he says next is just as important as what he said before. In the closing sentence, he says, To him be glory forever and ever. So be it. That glory is something completely different. That glory is the glory that we ascribe or we give to him. When all creation worships God, we are ascribing glory to him. We are giving glory. We are giving praise. We are worshiping him. We are literally pointing to him saying he is worthy of all worship. He is above all gods, lowercase g. He is worthy of our devotion and our gratitude. I've often wondered 
how, do, how can we give glory to God if we can never improve or add to the excellence of his glory? How do I give glory? Why do I see this in the Bible? Give glory to God. Well, he's got all of it. The answer to that quandary, if you've had the same question, is simply this. Worshiping and ascribing glory to God is the only right response to the brilliance of his essence. Giving glory to God, giving worship to God, lifting up our voices in worship is the only right response to the brilliance of all that God is, who he is. What else could be more apt, a more apt response when pondering the glory of Almighty God? What else do you do? Read in the Bible. When people were confronted with the glory of God, the presence of God, a messenger from God, they fell right to the dust. I mean, how many times do we, do we hear the words, don't fear, don't be afraid, fear not. I mean, you know, Jesus comes walking on the water. What are you supposed to, what's your response to that? So keep in mind the difference between recognizing the glory of God that is intrinsic to his essence and the glory that we bring and we give and we ascribe to him. The right response of all creation is to bow before him. And in our hearts. And to honor and bless his holy name. And for our actions to flow from that disposition. Understanding this critical difference. God's glory and the glory we give to him. Helps us answer the second question. That we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. How should the glory of God impact us? What is the right response to pondering God's glory? The answer is simple, but we don't execute it well all the time. We worship him and we ascribe glory and honor to his great name. When pondering the glory of God, it humbles us. Saints, it kills our pride. How on earth do we continue with a prideful attitude or spirit with the knowledge of God's glory and God's goodness? The glory of God in that sense should reduce us to the dust. We bow in humility to him. Is that not the response that our brother Job had in all of his afflictions and trials and bitterness of spirit? Chapter upon chapter upon chapter, he complains, he complains, and we can relate to that. We can appreciate and understand much of his mindset and his friends who did no help whatsoever. He is, he is feeling the weight of all of it. 
Ah, but you get to the end. And he has a clear picture of the glory of God. And what does he say? I kiss my mouth. I repent in dust and ashes. Because I have seen you more clearly than I have seen before. He came to a simple and clear understanding of who God is. All complaining ceased immediately. Remember in the New Testament it says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. This subject is the antidote to that very natural practice. When we perceive the glory of God, it naturally just pushes that aside. But it cannot be a passing thought here or there. Sometimes that's the best we can muster and that's okay. But remember how the book of Psalms opens up. Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God. Day and night. Who reads attentively. Who pays attention. Who pushes other things aside. So we can think about and ponder and reflect and digest and apply the truth of God. Pastor Steve Lawson has said, quote, The glory of God is the highest end for which all things exist. Nothing rises to a higher level of importance than the glory of God. Either we live for the glory of God or we do not live at all. We merely exist. The glory of God is primary. Everything else in life and in the universe is peripheral. The glory of God is supreme and everything else is secondary. The glory of God must be the epicenter of our lives, our highest purpose and our chief end. Amen to that. Saints, let us live for nothing less than the glory of God. Let our entire lives be an expression of our worship and our adoration of him. For by doing so, we give glory to God through our actions and our words. Yes, we give glory to God through lifting our voices in praise as we are gathered together to worship. That is beautiful. But we worship God as well through our work ethic, our relationship, our priorities. In all of these things, we have opportunity to do all things to the glory of God. In the weeks to come, we will look at the different aspects of God's glory, much like one would closely examine under a microscope a diamond. God's glory is brilliant and it is multifaceted. It is awe-inspiring. It is never boring and you never get to the end. We'll develop a picture of what it looks like to live for the glory of Christ. Would you join me for a word of prayer?
in this moment, let us quietly reflect on the great theme that is before us. That upon which we will park our minds for the weeks to come. Rightly understanding and being mindful of the glory of God and seeing how God has revealed and reveals His glory throughout Scripture will bring you much stability and peace in your life. It will be corrective at times and it will be freeing. What a joy to know that we can examine and study and ponder on who God is knowing that he loves us so deeply. It's a place of security and comfort. Knowing the extent that he has gone to to redeem us, to make us his own, to adopt us into his family. Let this be our highest pursuit and let it show in our lives. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this is perhaps in many ways the busiest time of year. Having started a new school year, getting back to routines and a rhythm of life, perhaps the summer was, for most of us, looks a lot different. O oh Lord, in the busyness that we are encountering now and getting back into our habits and our routines, what better time than this to anchor ourselves in knowing you better. Knowing you better, of course, begins often with our minds, with knowing about you. As that knowledge settles from our mind to our heart. As we learn to walk with you. To trust you. More often and more deeply. And with greater intentionality. O oh Lord, in the busyness and with everything that is before us. May your glory be a help and a comfort in all that we think, in all that we say, and in all that we do. Thank you for the glory, your glory that you show in redemption. In sending your son, the Lord Jesus, into this world to walk among us, to be subject in so many ways to the fallenness and the brokenness of this world. To know that our Savior, who upholds all things by the word of his power, 
shed tears. He wept. He was thirsty. He encountered the contradiction of sinners. Oh Lord, to know that he laid down his life for us. That he took upon himself our sin. More than taking it on, he became sin for us. That we might not merely take on, but become your righteousness in him. The blessed union that we have with Christ. Lord, in all of our worries, in all of our hurts, in all of our questions, in all of our doubts, in all of our complaining, settle us, help us, comfort us by seeing your glory. And by believing that the one who is so glorious, believing that you love us, that you are intimately acquainted with all of our ways, not just some of them, all of them. Thank you for the simplicity and the power of the gospel of Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Our prayer always is that if there is but one. Who has not turned to you in repentance. And put their faith, their trust, their confidence. In the Lord Jesus. Believing that he died and rose again in their behalf. We pray that today would be the day of their salvation. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.